0: Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, the author of Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth, Nick Majuli joins us. Stick around. That's coming up next.
1: Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Kraftwerk Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Kraftwerk Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions.
0: Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I'm Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host Dan Maseka. And this week, we've got two guests on the show, our very own Matt Trogdon. And joining us, the author of A Dollars in Data, the chief operations officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management, and newly published author, Nick Majuli. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me on.
0: So, your book is called Just Keep Buying, which feels like great advice in an environment like this. And we're going to get into that in just a moment. But for our audience that is unfamiliar with you, I was hoping you'd just kick us off with a little bit of your background. How did you end up in your current role? Can you tell us the story?
2: Yeah. So I majored in economics in college and I knew I didn't want to do like the traditional like investment banking or management consulting, but I found out about something called economics consulting, which is also like also known as litigation consulting. And so I was like, oh, I really like this idea because it's it's a lot more analytical. I'm going to learn like much more, you know, technical skills, harder skills than just like making PowerPoints and pitching businesses, et cetera, and doing presentations. So I was like, okay, I really want to work in that area. So I worked at at a company where I just got some pretty good data science skills over the course of six years. But I always kind of loved you know personal finance and investing, and I was like, how can I use this this skill and data and then apply it you know within this space, which I really love. And so I realized you know litigation consulting wasn't like the path for me. It was good, it was great. I learned a lot there. I love that company. I think it's probably one of the best well run companies I've ever worked for. Um, and on top of that, you know, I was just like, hey, so let's try this out. So I started blogging once a week long story short, after, you know, 11 months of doing this, I actually came out to New York for a conference and I met, you know, Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and basically all the people I now currently work with. Um, and so I made a transition to finance in mid 2018, about, you know, 18 months into the blog. And I've just been there ever since it's been almost four years now. Um, I've been in finance, even though I've been, you know, I've been writing about it for a little over five. So, um, yeah, it's been a, been a fun journey and kind of, Put the book together during COVID, and I can kind of get into that more if you guys want me to. But yeah, that's that's kind of that's my background, how I got here.
3: Nick, one of the parts I liked the most in the book was when you started to talk about your upbringing and your conceptions of money and and what you thought wealth was, and then getting to college and realizing that there was a whole another level of wealth that you hadn't even considered. I know in my life, I know in a lot of lives of our clients those very early experiences with money are so formative and have such a big impact on how we think about money and how we react to money now. I'm curious if you see that in your own life and if so, maybe how so.
2: Oh, completely. Yeah. I think a lot of our money beliefs and the reason why we do things, it's because of things we saw growing up. For example, um, you know, the big thing I splurge on, everyone has their splurge. Some people have splurge on everything, but I, I just have my one splurge is like restaurants and I live in New York City. So I'm, you know, I'm fine spending a lot of money on like restaurants and meals that people would say that's exorbitant how you spend that much money. But then I don't own a car. I've never owned a car. I'm 32 years old. Never had to pay auto insurance. You know, I don't buy super expensive clothing. Right. So I make up for it in other places. But the, one of the one of the weird examples of this, like, so I'll go and, you know, I'll spend $70 on a nice ribeye, you know, a nice dry ribeye, like nothing. But then every time I'm at McDonald's, I always order off the dollar menu because like, there's some weird thing when I was a little kid, like my my father would say, we got to order off the dollar menu. Or my mother would say, you know, we don't have much money, got to order off the dollar menu. So I had to like, oh, get my McDouble or get my little, you know, chicken sandwich or whatever it is. And to this day, even though I can easily afford like a $6 sandwich, I still order off the dollar menu. And I, there's just weird, that's just a quick example of that. But you can see how that's like ingrained in you from something from a long time ago. And it's not about the money. It's just like, there's something in where I feel like I, oh, I can't be spending this money on this stuff. So um, yeah, I think it's true for a lot of people. And it's interesting. I think what you really need to do is kind of look inside yourself. And why do I feel this way about money or this or that? Um, and is, a lot of times you can have false beliefs. Like this is something I haven't even talked about in any other podcast. But for a long time, I I had read some data about, you know, you know, relationships break up because of money. Money is one of the biggest issues that cause breakups, right? And so for me, I was like, I want to earn a lot of money, not because like I want to go spend a bunch of money and do all that. But I, I just don't ever want there to be a problem in my relationship. Because I saw you know, when I was six years old, my parents got divorced. I later found out that, you know, they had some bankruptcy issues. Their money was not, I don't think it was the only factor, but I thought it was the biggest factor. I later found out that wasn't even the biggest factor. Like if you're a kid, you don't know, you don't ask your parents, why did you, you know, you don't ask that type of stuff. It's very personal. Right. And so it's one of those things where once you realize like, Hey, wh- why do I feel this way about money? You'll probably be able to trace it to something in your past. And so in my case, I thought like, Oh, if I just make enough money, I don't want that to be the reason I ever, ever have a relationship issue, you know?
3: Yeah, I love that. I know for me, growing up, we always had the uh, generic brand cereal from the grocery store. And so mm-hmm. some of it tasted just like the, the on-brand stuff, and some of it was just terrible. But that is a, a, a money memory that I have that's sort of deeply ingrained. I, I will never buy generic
2: brand cereal again. Um, so I love that you share. Yeah, that. It's like that meme. Oh, we have that at home. Like, Hey mom, I want this thing. Like we have that at home. And then the version you have at home is the knockoff brand, right? Like right. when I was little, my mom used to like, I always got Oreos and my mom started buying the knockoffs and I knew right away. I was like, this is not like, I could tell it's like, this isn't them. Like, you know, so.
0: <laughs> so one of the things that I found really interesting and, uh, I've experienced this with clients and and I think you brought it together pretty nicely in the book is, you've know, you got one subset of the market that is like not saving enough. We've got people that are completely struggling to save and the statistics on how many Americans can't put together a thousand bucks for an auto repair is just staggering. And then on the other hand, you've got people that are like over saving into their portfolios and overly resourced, but maybe never feel that way, kind of bringing together what, what Matt was talking about. I think that's so much of our role as advisors. How do you see that playing out? kind of from an operations perspective, is it the data that you're sharing with advisors inside the company? I guess, how how do you exert that influence of really seeing both sides of that landscape in in a day-to-day role?
2: Yeah. So within like a advisory firm it's almost never the case that people can't save money especially cuz like by definition your clients are like high net worth or even if you know let's say we have a a robo platform we use for people below a million even most of these people are doing you know much better it's not an issue of saving money that i think they have for most of them there may be a few that are having those issues but for the most part it's the other problem. It's they have all this money. They've been so disciplined and great savers for so long. And now they have to, let's say they're in retirement. They have to flip the switch and go to spending. And it feels really weird for people to like spend your whole life. Like imagine you exercise every day and it was just something you have to do. And then one day say, you know what? You never have to exercise again. And it has nothing to do with your health. Imagine it didn't even affect your health. Imagine it's just some habit you had. I said, you're never have to exercise. You would feel weird not exercising. And you'd be like, no, I need to do this. Like it's the same thing with saving money. And so I think people who are just really good savers. And that's why they, you know, accumulated all these assets and they invested well in all that. Now they have to flip the switch. And I think it's really tough for a lot of people to do that. So that's just one thing to keep in mind. Um, the other thing is like, yeah, so roughly 40% of American households can't save money. I don't know the exact breakdown of what percentage of those are just young people or students and things who like, okay, you can't save money because you don't have income, right? There's some, ex- some portion of that. I don't know if it's, you know, of that 40, it's like 10 or like a quarter of those people, or if it's 50 or something, I don't know what the answer is, but some of those people are just temporarily poor, as I would say, and they're going to make more money in the future. And some of those households obviously will, you know, that you're going to see career growth, but then there's some of those who just don't have a great education um, and it's going to be harder for them in the labor market. And they're always going to not have enough to save, right? It's always going to be tough for them. And so finding ways or policy solutions to help those people is kind of what I advocate more for versus like a, you know, handouts to everybody. got to You got to kind of target things in, in the right way, you know?
1: And that's one of the things I appreciated the most about your book is I feel like you speak to people across the wealth spectrum and you offer actionable guidance, you know, realistic uh, insights that people can act on about how to think about personal finance uh, in a way that I don't think I often see from finance books. How do you feel like we can reach people and, and give them meaningful feedback who might be unable to save at this point and And I feel like it's easy to not think about personal finance if you don't believe you have finances to act on. Uh, But I think it is good information for the masses to have.
2: Yeah, I think because a lot of people can look at their balance sheet and let's say you're making ends meet. You're like, look, here's my income. Here's I'm not I don't have necessarily a degree or something. But the one thing you do have, like the biggest asset on your balance sheet that you're not even thinking about for most people, of course. At least early on in your career, is time. You have a lot of time. And with that time, you can go and get other skills and find ways to make more money. Right. And I just think it's, there are exceptions to this rule, but I think it's almost impossible to say that, like, oh, I couldn't earn more money doing something else. Right. And I couldn't take that money and put it to work or something. I think that's defeatist. And it's a question of years. Like, I, you know, I'll give you the example of what I did. Of course, it's very, you know, I'm coming from a very different background than most people. I understand that privilege. I get that. At the same time, like, you know, I was working a 50 hour a week job and I still spent 10 hours a week of my own time every Sunday. It was almost like my religion or my church, quote, so to speak. And I just started writing a blog. And so for three years, I didn't really make any money, I made basically zero dollars on the blog. And you know, maybe like, I maybe made a thousand dollars a year off like Amazon affiliate links. I was making no money on the blog. You know, and then after I grew enough of an audience and stuff, then I'm like, oh, I can run ads, or I can run email ads, I can do other things, right? And you can start making income opportunities happen. Now, that's not going to be true of every single thing out there. I just happen to love this, but I know there's people now that you can go drive for Uber, you can do Instacart. There's a lot of different things you can do to make extra money if you're low income. At least you can start. And I'm trust me, it's not easy to do that. But if you really, you know, hustle, you can start digging yourself out of that hole. And I think there are ways to do it. And it's, I agree, it's not easy. But it's also not easy, you know, you know. Doing, getting a degree or doing a lot of things that people have to do in life, right? It's going to be a struggle at times, but that's the whole idea. Once you can get out of that a little bit, start owning some income producing assets, hopefully that helps. And you kind of just keep building skills to the point where you can actually, you know, make more money. And I think, I think it's really tough. There's, as I said, there's a few exceptions to this rule. People who just maybe don't have the mental uh, capabilities to do even anything, even as simple as that. Those people are exceptions. Outside of that, basically, I think almost everyone should be able to increase their income over a five year period. Along those lines. One of the
3: things I took a lot of joy in reading in your book was you sort of took to task the, we'll call them the spending scolds and sort of that old saw financial advice that if you go get a cup of coffee at Starbucks every day, you're literally pissing your savings away and and that you'll never be able to retire and achieve your, your goals. Are there any other good kind of nuggets of conventional wisdom that you really enjoyed diving into and pulling apart and taking to task and disproving during this book writing process.
2: Yeah, besides that one which I had done years ago, I think the the big one, the biggest one is the whole like, oh, you're gonna run out of money in retirement thing. Now there are people that just don't have money and they just have to live off Social Security. So like they're always gonna have that income. And they're not gonna have money to they just live off what they have. Like there's nothing you can do. But for a lot of people it's like, oh you're gonna run out of money in retirement that does happen, but it's rare. It's incredibly rare. If you look at the data, only one in seven retirees is pulling down principal, which means the other six out of seven are living off their investment returns plus Social Security, right? In the United States, right? So I think we're always told people are going to run out of money in retirement, people are going to run out of money in retirement. And then you look at the data and it's just not, I just don't see it. Like in the data, I don't see it. There's so many different things I can bring up. I can bring up that one thing where they looked at how much money, you know, retirees are actually spending, pulling down. We know you know, spending goes down in retirement, so that's another thing we know. There was the Kitsi study where we said, hey, if you're doing 4%, using 4% rule on a 60-40 portfolio, the probability of you quintupling your wealth going up 4x after 30 years is higher than the probability of you being below your initial principal value. Right. And obviously this is based on historical returns. Now yields are lower. So maybe it's not four, but still, maybe it's two X now versus being below. So if you start with a million bucks, you're more likely to have two million after 30 years than you are to have less than a million, right? Maybe that's what it is now with lower yields. I don't know the exact and we're trying to guess the future, obviously. But historically, you're more likely to end up with four million and have less than a million, right? Which shows like just the power of compounding. People think, oh, I'm just gonna going to retire and spend all my money. And what you actually find is usually the opposite. People go into retirement and end up just their wealth keeps growing like more mm-hmm. than they would ever expect. Right. And I think that's kind of like the positive upside, like the upside surprises of the market. That's really where a lot of this happens. And so that's why I think it's, a, it's one of those cool things to kind of, you know, as you said, take to task and kind of just, you know, see what's really true. And there's others I can talk about, but that's probably one of my favorites because it's pushed in the media so much that there's a massive retirement crisis. They've been saying it for forever. And I just, I don't see it in the data. I'm not saying there's no one struggling. I think that would be ignorant as well. But the data is not saying this a massive, like half of retirees are just absolute struggling. I just don't see it.
0: I really liked your sequence of return data that, that you talked about and how, uh, what we should really be hoping for is great returns, like right before retirement obviously mm-hmm. we don't get to necessarily pick that our age seems to be the main determinant and and then the mm-hmm. luck is as you noted in the book but you know i think about the environment that we're in now where people have been concerned about equity levels maybe not as much as they were in in november at this point but even if the next decade were bad for somebody that's a younger investor and let's call that you know 50 or below being able to buy at depressed levels, if we're going to go through that sort of a period, seems like an actual benefit, right you would want those future returns to be good way down the line, not necessarily in our rearview mirror or right in front of us um, if we're continuing to be net savers but I think the the struggle that I come up with is i don't know that people will stay disciplined through that right It seems like the proof that people need to continue to be savers and investors is that it's working. And so that that's the piece where I guess I get kind of a little bit stuck there is, how do you encourage people through those negative periods while understanding that as long as there's a good period in the future, they're going to be just fine? Um, and I was just curious if you had any thoughts on that, on on really how to push on the behavioral aspect of it rather than just the data side.
2: So I guess my counter to someone who made that argument would be like, okay, what are you going to do instead? Are you just going to hold cash? Is that your solution? You know, In a world right now where we have 8% inflation, do you want to take – I'm not saying 8% inflation is going to continue forever. I think that's ridiculous as well, but let's just pretend the last year, oh, hey, I think markets are going to be down. Okay, maybe you're right. Who knows? Could happen. Unlikely over a 10-year period. Has happened. Will happen again for sure. So you're going to hold cash and just take an 8% haircut this year for sure. And then what Maybe a 4% haircut next year and a 4% after that and a 2%. I don't know the exact, I'm just making numbers up, but you get my point. Like what are your options, right? If it's just like sit in cash, you're like, oh, I'll own. You're like, you know what? Maybe I won't buy stocks, but I'll buy real estate. That's fine. I don't have any. Remember, I don't. In my book, I never say you have to own stocks. I do think owning equities is a prudent thing, but I don't. I never say you have to have at least you know half your you know risk assets in stocks. I don't think that's true. I don't think there. I don't think anyone can know the uh, the optimal. Solution for the future? Like, what's the best? Should I have this much stocks, this much international, this much REITs or real estate or farmland? No one knows. And I can't give you the answer either. And I wish I could, but I can't, right? If I knew that, I would probably keep it private and just lever up. And, you know, I would like, why would I tell someone? Like, no one knows that. So, the main takeaway is there's a lot of ways to get rich. And so, it's like, okay, if you're worried about stocks, then maybe own a little bit less of them and put that money into something else that you think is more promising. And, like, no one can know but i think you should be diversified and you should be diversified within an asset class and across asset classes those are the only two points i think i make in the book and i'm pretty strong about because you're right like what if the the next 10 years could suck right and it's going to be terrible like i'll oh, be putting money into us stocks and they're not going anywhere that could happen it's happened before right i think the path matters a lot too if we're on a slow downward decline over 10 years that is really really terrible and we've never had that happen in the us even oh two thousand two thousand nine. 2000 2009 you know we saw this decline cuz after you know dot com bubble came down so three years pretty bad not a, not a great um not a great look but then from 03 to 07 we kind of went up so you have hope right you have hope in between so i think the journey matters a lot and like the worst 10 year period i've seen for a stock market is like um, spain 73 to 83 cuz it was like a 6 year decline then it was like a 1 year up and then it went down even more so it was like there was this little moment of hope and then it was gone again right so It's one of those things. And those are very rare. Most of the time, even when you have, you know, a bad decade, it's like there's moments of hope where you can kind of get out of that, you know, bad mindset. And I don't I'm not saying I don't know what the U.S. is going to do. Of course, we could have a decade like that. And that would be horrific because it would be worse than almost anything we've experienced thus far, mentally, at least. So, um Says maybe the Great Depression. So, yeah, that's what I'd say to people. It's just like, what else are you going to do? And why is that better? And if you think, like, oh, I'm not going to own US stocks, I'm going to buy real estate instead. Okay, do that. There's nothing wrong with that. I actually don't disagree with that. You know, it's a question of like, what do you feel comfortable doing? And so, but if you're like, oh, I'm going to hold cash, it's like, why would you do that? That's, you know, that's almost guaranteed to lose money in the next 10 years versus stocks. It's, you know, statistically, you're probably going to do okay over the next decade. Yeah, and and I do love
0: that you give many examples of income-producing assets, um, and and you know what Warren Buffett would call productive assets is kind of the term we've always used on our show, but but I, I think they're the exact same thing. What is going to produce cash flow and and ultimately profits moving forward? Whether that's private business, whether that's ownership assets in real estate. Um, I've never been a huge residential real estate guy, but I do like REITs quite a bit more than that. Um, And maybe that's just my own colored experience with owning homes and uh, basically taking a bath on them. Um, But uh, so in any case, I really appreciate that about the book that you give multiple paths towards things that you could own that will produce income. And I think that was a great uh, way to share that. Appreciate that.
1: Thank you. So you've been blogging pretty consistently for about five years now. The landscape of finance has changed dramatically over that period of time. Is there anything you've noticed as far as a shift in the types of topics you're covering or the feedback you're hearing from your readers on the themes that are most important to them?
2: So I gen- I do once in a while like ask readers what type of things they want to hear me write about, and sometimes I'll do that. But a lot of times I just kind of follow what I think is interesting because – Certain things that might be interesting now may not be. So I've written about meme stocks like maybe two times, you know, because that people have talked about it. So I've written about it maybe a couple of times, but it's not something I focus a lot on and things like that, because I'm trying to write content. Ideally, that's like as evergreen as I can make it like where you can come back five years later and read it and like, wow, this is still relevant. Of course, there's gonna be weeks where I don't do that, where I talk about a specific event that led to an idea. But even within that, I'm trying to make everything like as useful as possible for as long as possible. So that's kind of my goal with writing just in general, because like, you know, what's the big takeaway here? Like in every sort of deep dive I do, like there's always some sort of takeaway I want you to have that you can use, you know, in in your future financial decisions, or just maybe your life if it's not about finance necessarily. So that's what I'd say to that.
3: Nick, there's a couple sections that if you would permit me, I'd like to go through uh, just because I think they can be really helpful to our listeners. Um, One thing that jumped out to me was you had some pretty clear prescriptions for what people should do if they're saving money to meet a certain goal within a certain period of time. Um, and so, uh, you talk about like, if you're saving for something that you're going to spend money on in the next three years, do X, if it's three to five years, do Y. And if it's longer than that, do Z. Um, can we just go through that and, um, just tell our listeners what you found, uh, when you were researching those questions and, and kind of maybe give them some thoughts on how they should, they should proceed. Cause this is a question we, uh, we experience a lot with our clients.
2: Yeah. So generally if you're saving up for something, let's say in the next, you know, Two years or maybe up to three, you want to mostly hold that in cash, right? Because cat, I mean, Janet, because cash is going to fluctuate much in value, right? Of course, there is the inflation which you're going to pay in the inflation tax, so to speak. Um, I remember, I wrote the book when you know, the the data I used in the end of 2020, so inflation had been low for like a decade, and then it was going lower in 2020. Inflation actually dropped, so I'm writing, you know, this in like 20 early 2021 before inflation's kicked up, and then it gets published right when you know inflation's like eight percent is high spend in four years, so it's you know i'm writing i'm trying my best right with the data i have at the time and so obviously inflation's been much higher than it's been and so i still think that's generally true on shorter time frames because like like oh what if i you're like nick inflation's going up i should own bonds and stocks like bonds are down 10% this year it's the worst return in i don't know how many third 20 30 years at least um, for bonds and so it's like you could have if you were saving up for a house or a wedding or something you move all that stuff into bonds and you just saw your assets decline by 10% now while yes and that's before inflation. Inflation is going to take it down even further, right? So bonds are not doing great right now in the US. So um, that's kind of the takeaway there is you kind of want to own cash for shorter term things. And then once you get to the three to five-year periods, you know, you can kind of own start putting more into bonds and things like that. And once you go past five years, you kind of want to start owning some sort of stocks, right? Um, obviously, it's hard to know because markets are going to do what markets are going to do. And so over f- most five-year periods, you know, US stocks are up and stocks are up, but who knows over the next five years, right? So that's always the thing. We don't, we don't know. And if people knew if there was a predictable way to do it, you'd think that would probably be arbed away eventually, you know, at least over shorter time frames. over longer time frames, it's much harder because there's the path matters, as I just said, right? You know, it's like, well, if U.S. stocks are going to be up after every 30 year period, like you should never worry. But the problem is 30 years is a long time. Like your life can change in so many ways. So just sitting, waiting around for 30 years is not easy for most people to do because we have biological constraints, you know, which is our lives and our age and everything. So.
0: And to your point earlier, the question then becomes like, what would your alternative be if you weren't going to hold cash for something short term? And many of the things where people think they might hide uh, for in, from inflation, gold's up maybe a percent, a hair over that this year. If you were owning you know, crypto or Bitcoin, you're just getting hammered because those really trade like risk assets. And so it really becomes, where would you put the money to, to hide as an alternative? And there, is, there isn't a good answer to cash.
2: Yeah. And right now there's not, I mean, you're like, you're saving up for something, no matter what you're losing money, like you're losing infl- money to inflation, you're losing it in bonds, you're losing it in risk assets, like just values being, you know, destroyed just generally right now, because people are, prices are coming down right across the board. So I don't, you know, unless you have an invert, I mean, it's one of those things where you can be like, well, maybe I'll put 80% in cash and 20% into like an inverse S and P 500. And like, maybe that could work. I just don't, I think over the long term, you're going to have to pay a little bit of a fee for that. So most of the time that would probably lose you money, but once in a while, you know, it could work to do something like that. So.
3: So someone who's getting married next month, uh, I should have had my money in cash is what you're saying instead of what I've
2: probably. Yeah. Over the over when, over what period of the, like the last two years. Yeah. If you knew like, Hey, or even the last year, probably. Yeah. It's a heck of a time to learn, Matt.
3: Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you live, you learn, right? Um, The second uh, section I thought would be really interesting for our listeners to hear about was your take on 401ks. Um, And so two things that jumped out to me specifically um, was you mentioned that you prefer a traditional 401k to a Roth 401k. uh, And then you also made a compelling argument for why someone shouldn't max out their 401k. Mm -hmm. If you could talk a little bit about those, I think those would be great.
2: Yeah, so I actually think you can use both for one ks, whether it's traditional or Roth, and I've I've used both. I did you know Roth when I was younger and went to traditional. You know, as I've kind of gotten older, my income's gone up and I've gone into higher tax brackets. Um, I still generally prefer traditional a little bit because you know the flexibility is a little bit better in terms of you can play tax games later in life. Like if you know, for example, that you know right now you're earning in a high income uh, high. State with high income tax, like let's say New York or California, but you know you're going to retire in a place like Florida where there's no state income tax, right? So that or that tax arb is there, right? You can be in one place and you know you're going to move later. It's probably better to use a traditional over a Roth. The other thing too is most people when they're getting a match from their employer, that's always done in a traditional. It's almost I don't think it's ever done in a Roth. I've never heard of that being done in a Roth. So no matter what, you're kind of doing both anyways. So that's what I would say. There is just like think about the options you have and you know be more open. I think there's a lot you can do with traditional. In terms of not maxing out your 401k, that's a very controversial take I have, but I don't think it's right for everyone. Of course, there's certain people that should do it where it makes sense, but I think you look across the board, you need to know your 401k fees. And some people are like, oh, I don't want to dig through the documents. Like, well, you need to know, because if not, you could be paying, you know, I right, calculated that the, you know, the capital gains, avoiding capital gains by owning a 401k plan, right? That's where you're. you don't have to pay tax on your earnings that's about worth about 0.7% a year, roughly, right? So if you're paying over 0.7% a year more in fees than you would pay in like, let's say in an IRA or a brokerage account or something, then you're really like, you're having negative like tax alpha, like you're putting extra money in there above your employer match, right? And all that money, you're actually losing money relative just having in a brokerage account and managing it decently well. You know, one of the things I didn't even talk about in the book, which I now kind of, kind of wish I had, but it, it would have made it more complex is like, you know, you can pull out as a single individual in retirement or whatever, you're not even in retirement any year, you can pull out like $40,000 a year and you're, if it's only capital gains, you have no other income. You're just getting paid dividends. Or you're selling, you know, your capital gains on your portfolio. You can pull out 40 grand a year tax-free, zero tax. It's crazy. But if you include the standard it's like 50 grand, you have you and a, let's say you have a spouse. That's now a hundred grand a year, two people. You can pull out a hundred grand a year tax-free. And like once you include that calculus, now the 401k looks much, much worse, right? Because imagine you can take all that money you do to your match, right? Your employer match, everything above the match you just put into a brokerage account. And then one day you're just living off that stuff. You don't even need to touch your 401k. You're gonna have to you're gonna be forced to do it because of RMDs and stuff like that, or um, required minimum distributions, where the government basically forces you to take the money out so they can collect some taxes. Besides things like that, you know, I I don't see the point in uh, in doing the 401k above the employer match because I just think there's, and especially if you don't know the fees you're getting paid, if you have a really good 401k, okay, it can make sense. If you know you're in, for example, a high tax state now, you're gonna be low tax state later, it makes sense. But there for a lot of people, just no one questioned it. So for me, I'm just like question these things. There's a lot of things I want to go back to first principles. What is is this actually true? Is this actually a good idea? And that's all I'm asking people to do is just think about these things. Let's let's kind of question what we've been told because I've as I've shown in the book, a lot of things we're told aren't necessarily true.
0: No, and what you're really doing is is what we've tried to do with our show in many cases. Um, which is a little bit of a rage on the bite-sized finance advice, right? You get mm-hmm. a lot of folks that are out there trying to make it so digestible and so easy. And there's a value to that is that people that they can remember it. And these things get stuck in our mind, things like the 4% rule or um, mm-hmm. you know, what percentage of your income you should be saving. And everybody's different, right? Like Our profession literally would not need to exist as individual advisors if everybody should be doing the exact same thing. This is a... Thing that should be personalized and you should make individual choices relative to your situation, what you're actually trying to accomplish, which is so much of um, what we're trying to do both with our show and our, our individual practices.
2: Yeah, I agree. I agree completely.
0: So Nick, I guess final thing, I guess I just wanted you to reflect a little bit on the difference between writing your blog and then actually putting together a book. Uh, and we had Morgan on our show, uh, Morgan Housel, when he released his book as well. And, and I think he kind of thought of it as organizing several longer blog posts
2: is that kind of how you thought about it as well, or did this feel different to you than your normal writing? I wouldn't say it's, I mean, I would say organizing is correct. That's the correct term I would use. I wouldn't say it was like organizing longer blog posts. I think it was organizing a lot of blog posts. Or I would say, you know, 50%, maybe 60% of the material was something that I've done before and I've kind of re- rearranged Frankenstein monster, a couple different pieces into one, you know, like, hey, I've like, i written on this here, here, and I kind of put all those points together. Um, I think for me, everything was about structure, right? And that's that's why I guess organization comes in, like everything's about how you structure it, right? And so for me, I took one of my early blog posts called Savings for the Poor, Investments for the Rich, which is like the first chapter. And that lays out the entire book, which breaks into saving and investing. So I got the personal finance you know, people and all the investing people that would like to read those things. And I kind of talked about both of them and I, and I kind of explained why this idea is so important because... You need to focus on different things at different times in your life. That's kind of the main takeaway. And I think a lot of books, it's just like, hey, here's a general finance book and you can lose so much of your audience because you're writing for someone and you don't know where they are. Like you you have no information on them, right? So because you have no information on who your reader is, you have to like write to everyone and then you're going to knock some people out. So I said, hey... I don't know a lot about you, but I can say, just give me these two numbers and that can kind of tell you where you are. And then you can focus based on that, right? That's kind of the the message I had. So I could say, I can kind of keep my audience a little bit more engaged and say, Hey, maybe you don't need help saving money. You know, you're, if you're 65 years old and retired, you don't need to read the saving section unless you just want to for fun. You know, so I would say, jump to the later half of the book and read that. So I prefer just providing value and saving people time over like, oh, I want you to read every single page of my book. I don't, I don't get any ego from that because no offense, it's just not going to be useful to people. And I know that like if, you know, like I don't have as much, you know, I, I wouldn't find the saving section as useful today as I would have found it when I was 23. I would have found it incredibly useful, right? Yeah. And I
0: I, I think that's great, right? And and we're all time strapped. Uh, most of us are, are struggling just to consume enough good information. And so I think you broke that down in a really nice way for your readers. Uh, the book is called Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth. Nick Majuli, we really appreciate you joining the show. Wish you a lot of success with the book and, and uh, with your your day-to-day work. And uh, we look forward to continuing to be readers.
2: Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.
0: Once again, a big thank you to Nick for joining us on this week's show. There is a link so that you can purchase his book in the show description if you would like to check that out. Uh, we do recommend it. It was a great read, uh, really easy to get through, and uh, I really enjoyed it. If you've got questions for our show, personal finance, things you'd like to hear us get into and unpack for you, check your balances at outlook.com is the email address. Thanks for tuning in this week. We'll catch you next time.